Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As ever, welcome to Brooklands. I'm going to first apologise. If it goes quiet all of a sudden, it's got nothing to do with the technology. My voice will fail. So um, that might be a good thing. I don't know. Um, a very warm welcome to all our guests. It's great to see you this evening. For those who don't know me, I'm Steve Clark, and I have the pleasure and honour of running these events with a team on behalf of BTM. Um, some of you know that the, one show, the BBC One Show drives me mad. I watch it every night, and if you ask me what was on last night, I've absolutely no idea. But it's a great end to the day. And then all of a sudden, they throw something at you that you think, hmm, that's an interesting one. Well, our guest was on the One Show over a year, well, last year, and I thought, I must get this guy and find out why he jumps out of an aircraft at such a bloody high height. So I think we're about to find out. Will you please welcome Fraser Corsan. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, appreciate the welcome and thank you, Steve, and uh, all your membership and uh, the trust for actually inviting me down today. Um, hopefully we can have a quite entertaining and fun evening. Um, can everyone hear me first of all at the back? Yeah. yeah. Okay, super. Excellent. Well, without further ado, because we've got quite a lot to cover here, um, I'm going to jump in. Now, the, the normal approach that people think when they hear wingsuit is lunatic. Um, and they think, well, skydive first of all does that. But uh, wingsuit, they think, is a, a special kind of crazy, you know, getting inside a nylon straitjacket and uh, bobbing yourself out of an aircraft. Um, tonight, I hope to dispel a few myths and give you a bit of a backstory uh, as to what took me on this journey um, and a little bit of my history um, because uh, I'm not all I seem. <laughs> so, uh, it started many years ago, probably being dragged around various air shows by my father, um, me dragging him more the other way. Um, I've been passionate about flight since a very, very early age. Uh, I want to be a pilot. Uh, Red Arrows, um, Harrier, you name it, any of those aircraft would have done. So all of my youth built up to, I need to go and get either an engineering degree um, or I need to start flying somehow. And the issue was, as I discovered fairly rapidly at my Aberdeen interview board, medical, was I was colourblind. Um, really, really badly colourblind. In the books they give you, and you go through, and uh, there's about 80 pages, and uh, you, know, you, you pick out the kettle and the number and the letter. Um, I got about two out of 80 right. They said, you're really colourblind. So what they then said was, um, we'll offer you an alternate because you've actually passed everything else, your aptitude's good, um, you can be a weapons engineer officer, um, here are 80 NATO coloured wires, pair them up. If you can pair them up, we're confident you won't kill anyone. So I paired them up successfully. Um, I then spent a couple of weeks on board um, various uh, ships at the time, um, so HMS Norfolk with a uh, prestigious individual who was then a Captain Jonathan Band, who went on to be uh, first seagull. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't for me. Um, but the weary life just was not for me. I still had at my heart um, an enthusiasm and passion for air. Uh, and I wanted to get engaged in that space. So uh, at the time I was doing my aeronautical degree, um, I did a special project uh, that looked at recovering 737 aircraft using parachutes in the event of the complete failure of all hydraulics, uh, power supply, everything. Uh, and I proved it. And uh, after publishing this paper, um, uh, a small company called Kinetic um, said they'd be quite interested in interviewing me. So I went down to Kinetic, 
and uh, they said, look, you're, you're quite an interesting individual in terms of your mindset and innovation here, so we'd love you to come on board uh, and work within our safety team on the aircraft. So, I thought, fantastic, I'm going to get an air career after all, and Kinetic, Prestigious, Xdera, Custom Down, Farnborough, absolutely marvellous. So the very first job I did was on a tank. <laughs> so the tank in question was the Challenger 2 tank up there, um, and I had to write a safety case for it. And for those who aren't aware of safety cases, any bit of equipment um, in the military, whether it be a gun, a nuclear submarine, an aircraft, or a tank, um, you have to have a safety case that says it's safe to operate. Um, so they taught me how to do safety cases, um, and very shortly after doing that, I found myself being asked to write a basic safety strategy for the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight. So I'd gone from a tank to my absolute holy grail, Spitfire, Hurricane, Dakota, Lancaster, um, beautiful aircraft, um, incredible heritage, um, and a real privilege. Uh, apart from the long journeys back and forth to RF Collingsby, which I'm afraid I, I like hills, and there aren't many linkages. So I arrived and looked after the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, um, developing that safety case for them. And had some fantastic experiences with them. And during that time, uh, I was locked in the archives one day, going through as I was, because the idea was that I would look at what problems there had been in the past, what there were currently in terms of maintaining and supporting the aircraft, um, and ensuring that uh, what we were doing today in terms of supportability and operations was well inside the boundaries of what was possible with the aircraft. Well, obviously, the aircraft isn't taking 40,000 feet anymore. Um, obviously, it's not in a fighter role. Um, but there are still issues clearly around aging airframes um, and how you actually support them, um, how you maintain power plants and where there is a limited supply in the world, um, and all the support infrastructure. So anyway, whilst I was doing all that good stuff, I came across this fantastic um, classified pamphlet um, which explained that back in World War II, uh, in the early years, an SOE agent had been dropped into France, stolen a measurement 109, flown it back to the UK, up to Martlesham Heath, and operated against the Spitfire and a Hurricane so that they could work out um, turn rates, dive rates, uh, and basically engagement rules, um, in which case, uh, you know, to keep them all alive. So this was great. Um, I did that for a while, unfortunately they clawed me away from that, um, and from going from the most beautiful aircraft in the world, I went to the most complex, politically, and expensive aircraft. So the Eurofighter, uh, I was on the Eurofighter program for five years, and I looked after basically the safety case for it. I actually wrote what they call a whole aircraft safety case. And on that uh, aircraft, things would go wrong that you wouldn't believe would go wrong. Um, but it was a great time, really, really enjoyed it. And in between all of that, um, you're thinking, what on earth is that? That is the NATO submarine rescue system. In the event of a submarine um, being lost and losing power or sitting on a seabed, the NATO submarine rescue system has a 24 7 um, call out. Uh, where it will go around the world, dock, you can just see the docking device at the bottom there, um, onto said submarine and actually save individuals. And it was actually used in the Piet. Uh, and there's some modifications that we actually came about and, and worked with uh, the team post the Kursk disaster that occurred. And the reason I tell you this before I jump into the world of wingsuits is because actually to do what I do um, is all about risk management. And it's all about understanding the boundaries and the levels and how far you wish to push them. And I, I, I take what I fly with my wingsuit as experimental flying um, because it's the most adaptive wing there is because I can change it into sh any shape I like. So, um, for a period, these are the kind of platforms that I worked on and programs. Um, 
Tragically, I was involved in the post Nimrodar 1 crash investigation, um, which was an extremely tough time, but also um, actually very value adding because we learned a huge amount about those programs and we were able to get to a position whereby we could make the right decisions for the future. Uh, we looked very closely at the TriStar and the Hercules, um, as well as obviously the R1 immediate impact issues. Um, and we learned a huge amount from that experience, which has flown on into aviation safety for the UK and wider. The very sad individual picture on the left there, which is one of the biggest white elephants, expensive ones in the world um, for the UK, uh, is the Nimrod MRA-4. Um, you remember that uh, they tried to put screens up against it when they tore it down to protect it from the press, while the press managed to hire a helicopter. Um, the tragedy there was actually that was done for the right reasons. Um, but this was a long time after a lot of money had been sunk in and a lot of very passionate engineers had put their heart uh, and soul into that aircraft. The um, interesting fireworks that you see in the middle section there is the nosewheel landing gear failing on a Typhoon landing back at Collingsby. Um, that was an interesting one because you think landing gear is fairly basic but um, we managed to prove them otherwise. So uh, we came up with quite a few challenges with that. Uh, I think my best experience on the Typhoon, the most entertaining one, was when a certain wing commander decided to uh, fly a typhoon for the weekend over to Belgium. He uh, failed to follow the uh, uh, statement of operating intent and usage which tells you exactly how you should cool down the brakes on landing after doing a very hot short landing. And whilst walking away from the aircraft, the uh, forward landing gear caught fire. He then had to phone back to the UK after he'd been put out and explain what the situation was. They then had to try and tow the aircraft. Well, the aircraft was normally taxied on its own power. Um, uh, but they couldn't do that because the damage that had occurred. And so they burnt out the clutch of three Suzuki Vitaras trying to pull it off. I kid you not. Belgium Air Force. Brilliant. Um, trials of the A400M. Um, this is when we were doing the trials into uh, basically landing on beaches. So that's a picture of how much uh, rubbish can you ingest and, and, and still get on. So it's partly for the engines but also obviously for the uh, structure of the aircraft and maintaining and looking at obviously fatigue impact and those kind of cycles. And a lovely picture there of um, obviously the um, Battle of Memorial flight between the Lancaster and Spitz and Hurricanes, uh, and then a number of things around uh, ejections which I won't go into, um, and the DAS at the top, so the defensive aid suite, so um, the flares and shaft that you put out if you've got an incoming uh, target. Um, we actually uh, put a team together which bought some BA 146s, so kind of middle range transport aircraft, uh, re equipped with DAS and used them for um, optelic herrick within the air bridge because it meant that we didn't have to take away C-17s every time and C-130s, which is incredibly expensive to run. Whereas a BA-146, um, relatively, relatively straightforward. And then finally, what I find myself working on today um, is a large amount of work around the F-35, um, which sadly I can't really tell you about. Um, my, my background is aviation and defence, uh, and I do a lot in security now. Um, so, so that's why F-35 is there. So, moving on to uh, my slightly less fixed wing, um, activities. Um, that's a very busy slide, um, simply because I did want to go through 500 different pictures of me doing various weird things around the world. Um, the shots there range from jumping in um, Switzerland and Sweden to uh, jumping uh, over Kennedy Space Centre in the middle there, where I'm holding hands with the other chap, doing about 180 miles an hour on a head, um, to sitting in altitude chambers and uh, wind tunnels testing. I've, I've been very fortunate, although I haven't been able to physically uh, fly an aircraft, uh, or at least a military aircraft, um, I have been able to fly my own body Wow! Um, and, and test the clearances on that. So uh, over that period I've had to do some quite interesting things. 
Uh, and I'll, I'll share with you a couple of those in a second. And those are just a few of the, the background things I've managed to accumulate. Two and a half thousand jumps, uh, 1,500 wingsuit jumps. Um, I actually tried sky surfing once. I don't know if you're aware of what sky surfing is. Sky surfing is where you strap a board, like a snowboard, to your feet. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, what actually happens is it wants to become a helicopter. So naturally, the board is the highest drag on your body. Uh, it inverts you very rapidly after exiting the aircraft, as people looking out the door laugh. And you start to spin. So uh, I, I did that for about two weeks, and then decided that was enough. Um, but I, I learned the basic controls of it, but it was a good experience, but not something I wanted to sustain, because you're still heading earthward at quite a rapid speed. Um, and you've still got to detach this board before you, uh, before you land. So then the wingsuits came along, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more in detail of those in a second. So, this is probably one of my luckiest jumps ever. Uh, lucky in, in, in terms of being at the right place at the right time. Um, this is my 25th birthday. Uh, this was the Space Shuttle Endeavour, um, taking off from Kennedy Space Centre in Florida. And whilst I have done a measly uh, 12,000 foot freefall, um, those guys have just um, covered uh, basically a five hour flight duration, uh, 4.6 million miles in, in their mission. So that was pretty humbling. And, and the funny thing is, when you do a jump like this, and that's a very lucky shot by the way, because everyone was zooming around and we just happened to get that. Shouldn't tell you that. Um, Underneath you are alligators, because there is a place called the Indian River Lagoon, so you don't want to land off. And the pilot's got a great sense of humour. So the way the shuttle jumps take place is clearly, you know, we go with our timing and try and sync it so that we are in time with the actual space shuttle launching. Now, if any of you have watched shuttle launches in the past, you'll know that sometimes they go on hold. And often they go on hold at about 30 seconds or a minute. Um, now, we're in a pattern. And we're in a pattern with probably around 80 to 100 light aircraft who all want to get this kind of shot just from the visual. Because the difference you have with the shuttle taking off um, on the ground, which you see a you know, 2D visual where you're looking ahead at it and you see it go out and you see the bloom as the, as the rockets fire up and it's very beautiful, is that when you're above it, it looks like a flower. It's absolutely stunning. You see the pressure wave go out from the side and you see this ring of fire. It's absolutely beautiful. So all these other pilots have decided they want that shot as well. And they want to be up there and, and, and in that space. Um, now, this is slightly disconcerting as someone who's about to drop through that space. Now, they're aware that we're there, and they have a clearance that says, this is your slot, this is our slot. Um, however, anyone who's flown in the US and knows some of the home-build antics and individuals flying out there, there are a few characters in the airspace. So when you're exiting, the pilot turns around and he says, good luck. Oh, that's very nice, thank you. And he says, no, I really mean it, good luck. <laughs> he said, we've got 120 other aircraft in the circuit with us. And some of them aren't holding position. You still want to go? Of course, the Americans avoid, oh yeah! Brits, yes, I think so. Can't be shown to uh, lose face in front of the Yanks. So anyway, we exited the aircraft. Um, the timing was perfect. Uh, on that jump. On a prior jump, we got put on hold. And the problem is, we can't obviously stop in space. We are in a circuit. And we've designed our circuit that we're flying so that we end up over our drop zone. Um, this drop zone, if you don't land on it, has uh, a rather large freeway. You've got the I-95 going down there. Um, you've got the Indian River Lagoon, which is um, a nature reserve um, for delightful things like armadillos and not quite so delightful things like large alligators. 
Um, and then you've got a cemetery, appropriate some might say. Um, you've then got, sorry, black humour. Um, you've then got um, a, a baseball diamond and you've got a drive-through Burger King. These are kind of the outs you can go for. Um, anyway, we got out on this one, it was fine, but on a prior jump that I actually did, um, we were out of slot by about two minutes, which equated to about three miles with the running speed that we were on. So it's our call. You don't have to get out of the aircraft, but this is a once in a lifetime chance, and possibly it really is. So you get out of the aircraft, and um, you, you've done the shots, and you've had a look around, and then you decide to deploy, deploy about 2,000 feet higher than normal, so you've got a chance to get back in. But you can't deploy too high because you've still got all the other aircraft in, in, in the circuit. So I, I picked up a young lady who had um, gone underneath by about 2,000 feet and she was flying her canopy down into what looked at the time like a relatively large garden. Um, as I approached the garden I realised that I hadn't spotted the large cypress at the end of the garden. So big cypress tree and I actually had to spin the canopy around and get it in against this, uh, this garden. Got in there fine. I found out later that the others had all gone for the Burger King drive through but I had more styles. <laughs> so that was pretty humbling. On to the main event, um, Project Cirrus. So, wingsuit flying, I've been doing for a while now. I started in 2001. Uh, there are around three of us in the country and about 10 in the world at the time. And uh, I thought, you know, this is the closest I can get to real human flight. Uh, and it's always been something that fascinated me. So I set out and I got a wingsuit. Um, and I started and, and built up some experience through that. And after a while, over many years, and different suits and evolving the uh, advancement and uh, aeronautics on them, and I worked very closely actually as a test pilot on wingsuits, um, we came up with some pretty high performance suit. And we reached a point where it's possible to start setting some interesting records. Now, I'm not one just to go out and set a record for the sake of a record. Records are great, but it's great if you can do some good with them. Uh, having worked for 20 years in defence, um, it's really nice to have the opportunity to give something back. Now, SAFA is the Soldiers, Sailors, Airmen, Families Association. It's the oldest armed forces charity in the UK, uh, pretty much in the world, in fact. And what they do is they help individuals, and they help individuals' families. So even if the family's been bereaved and they have no physical contact or member in the military anymore, they will support them. Now, for me, that's fantastic. So I said, look, guys, I'm going to help you out. And they had a problem. Um, the brand Safra is not well known. Everybody knows, and there will be one name which virtually comes to everyone's mind when they think of military charities. And there's a lot out there now. But Safra were kind of falling behind and finding this really challenging. So I said, look, I will try and raise you some money, but we'll also try and actually get awareness uh, for what's going on uh, that you do, but also for your brand. So that's why I chose Safra. Um, and the individual you see on the left there is a guy called Rory McKenzie. Uh, Roy did two tours in Afghanistan. Um, the second tour in Afghanistan, he lost his left leg um, uh, just below the hip. Um, Rory is a phenomenal individual. Um, there is no pity. Um, Rory recognises what happened um, and he grabs life completely and, and runs with it. Um, Rory's rode the Atlantic. I wouldn't rode the Atlantic. Rory's rode the Atlantic um, with one other guy. He said, actually, in hindsight, halfway across, they decided this is probably a really bad idea. Um, but they were halfway, so they may as well keep going, because they get back soon. Uh, Roy's a lovely guy. Um, he's just, in fact, had his first son, which is brilliant. Um, but uh, I said to Rory, I said, Rory, have you ever done a jump? He said, no, I haven't. He said, any chance you could uh, sort me out? So I said, yeah, I'd be delighted to. So I went with Rory uh, down to Netherhaven, and uh, we made this jump. 
And Roy said, it'd be great if I could see you on, uh, in flight. I was like, oh, thanks, Roy, because that's really hard. But hey-ho, I'm always up for a challenge. So the reason it's hard is because with this suit, I'm flying at a descent rate of around 26 miles per hour when I'm flying at a max performance descent. Normal freefall, 120. Two chunky individuals like that um, will be going south about 140 if they don't throw the drogue chute, the pilot chute above them, which is what the little line to the shot there is, they will happily hit 180 miles per hour. So, I've got to try and team up with Rory. Not going to happen in free fall, I told him, so it'll happen on the canopy. So, what I did was, I got out of the aircraft first, I flew away for a minute before they exited, they then exited, so imagine I'm now gliding away, they then exited in free fall, they deployed their parachute, I'm still above them, so I then dive and fly past their canopy. It worked. Uh, Rory actually didn't remember any of it because he was just so thrilled with the skydive, so thanks, Rory. Um, but uh, it, it was great fun, uh, and it, it's about actually giving people those kind of opportunities. Um, but that was the fun stuff. You know, Rory had his house completely redesigned for him uh, and helped by Safa. Um, so, however small, however big, they're, they're there to help. So, that's what we want to do to raise awareness. Now, I've done marathons before, um, I've done sponsored bike rides, but I wanted to do something that would stand out as sufficiently wacky, which is difficult these days in the media to always, that people would sit up and they'd have a look and go, actually, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, and sure enough, the media attention we got was huge. Um, so it allowed us to uh, do some interesting things. So those are actually the records that we were going for. Um, we wanted to go for the highest altitude record, um, which currently uh, is 37,400 feet. Uh, and the target we have was 42,000 feet. We then wanted to go for the longest time flown in the wingsuit. Um, so actual duration of flight before I deploy my parachute and the current record is 9 minutes 51 seconds and we want to just go for 10 minutes doesn't seem by much but when you realise the workload on the body um, it, it's a huge amount we then want to achieve the highest speed um, which is challenging to say the least um, because at those speeds the wingsuits can perform quite interestingly at altitude so they can become quite dynamic um, and uh, you have to be very careful with all your other kits that actually your equipment is safe and you're not going to be having premature deployments or any issues like that. And then finally, um, the furthest distance actually flown in a wingsuit. And, and a lot of this is down due to um, you can have tailwinds, and obviously tailwinds are going to help you. Um, but at the same time, you need to obviously have a glide path, which is at its optimum, which means you have to work your body very effectively. Because when I'm flying the wingsuit, the structure of the wingsuit is me flying the wingsuit. There are no solid rigid parts in that suit apart from the carbon fiber blades. Uh, I'll talk about those in a minute why they're there. Uh, and you can see when you enter the aircraft on the left hand side there, um, what, you, what you actually have is you have uh, inflation of the suit very rapidly. And so I have to ensure that when I exit that aircraft, um, I'm not getting anywhere near the tail. Uh, otherwise I'm not going to be very popular uh, either for myself, my wife, uh, or the pilot, uh, or the owner of the aircraft. They're not the same. Um, so we worked on the suit and, and we went through a lot of dynamics, but those were the four goals we were actually going to get to. But um, I'll go back to some basics now. What actually is a wingsuit? Um, fundamentally, it is an aerofoil shaped around a human body. Uh, it's two skins of nylon. You can use different fabrics within it, but nylon's very effective. It's super tough. It's relatively light. Uh, we use a, a solution called saw coat. Uh, which is basically a uh, polymerized spray, which means there is virtually no uh, air bleed on it at all. So they're very low porosity. So if you look at a sailcloth, it's very similar to that. Um, it doesn't let air flow outside of it. Um, 
which is powerful. On top of that, the basic wing seats when they start out are quite small, um, and we'll go through the evolution a little bit in a minute. There are 147 different components in this wingsuit. So it looks quite simple on the outside, but it actually uh, has a lot of different wing dynamics within it. Um, the fact it's wearing a Russian star as well is quite entertaining here. Um, the chap who built the suit thought it'd be amusing knowing that I was a Eurofighter safety lead to put a Russian star from a MiG on my, uh, my horizontal stable over there. Um, I only realised that after it had come across me flown and I just hadn't spotted it, so we, we, we removed that later. So, where did it all begin? Um, it's an optimistic chap, we, we've got to love it. Man's always wanted to fly. Uh, we've all had an aspiration at some point or other, well a few of us have, um, to go and fly. Uh, the issue was in the early days, one, an understanding of fundamental aerodynamics. Um, two, the human body physiologically just simply is not built to hold large wings, as this individual probably found out after an afternoon of jumping with edges. <coughs> Fair play though, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty good effort. Um, the problem is, as you build these kind of wings, uh, you start coming into challenges with structure and instability in design. And so, moving forward, people realised that there were certain uh, sizes of wing that they could handle and they could fly with. And there were certain sizes they simply couldn't. And some of them unfortunately found that out in flight. Uh, so, limited technology uh, and a real challenge around the actual early designs. The early designs kind of looked at a bat and said, well, that's what a bat's got, that's what I need. Um, but that's not quite the case. So, through the 1930s, um, there was a huge amount of air circuses uh, and, and barnstorming going on. Um, aviation hadn't been around for very long. It was really exciting. Um, there was a lot of people who were, you know, crossed over from the, uh, the race car world and the biking world into, into the aviation world. A lot of the same power plants and the aircraft. Um, and there are a few individuals who are brave enough to do this. And I say brave enough because when you've flown the modern suits and you realise what these guys were flying, uh, it really is quite extraordinary. Um, these suits have no cutaway devices on them. So if things start going out of control and you're putting 120, 140, 150 mile per hour airflow on this level of fabric on your body, it's a massive workload. So if you've got no mechanism to release those wings, it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, most of them deployed from front-mounted reserves because all you went was when you went unstable, you went onto your back, um, your arms went up, you grabbed your front-mounted reserve, you pulled out the pilot chute and you threw it away from you. And, and fortunately, gravity went one way and aerodynamics went the other way uh, and you got yourself a round reserve parachute. And rounds, actually, as a parachute, are incredibly stable. Which is why they're still used by special forces today for mass drops. Um, but, uh, yeah, those guys were incredibly brave. Uh, top right, there's actually Clem Shaw. And here he is. So people, people mention Clem quite a lot um, because Clem actually was the media man of the day. He knew how to capture the media and he got all the papers involved and he got a number of people in, on the American side involved um, from the Hollywood directors and he appeared in a couple of films. The issue with Clem was um, he only made it to 26. Um, so otherwise, that was a bit of a career, career fall there. Uh, very, very tragic. Um, but this was the danger. These guys were flying straight out of an aircraft, climbing off the wing as you can see in the top there, um, falling down, opening up, and off they went. But if you can't release the wings, it's incredibly dangerous. And you know, you'll get away with it maybe nine times, maybe 99 times, but that hundredth time, it's gonna bite. So there were actually 74 birdmen in this era over about a 10 year period. Only one of them survived. That's just incredible. But it was kind of accepted, you know, 
you saw these fatalities, but oh well, that's very exciting. Um, but it, this is, you know, this is really brutal stuff. However, there was one individual who was quite insightful, and some of you may or may not be aware of this individual. He was called Harry Ward. Later, squadron leader Harry Ward. Harry Ward worked out that it would probably be a good idea if he could get rid of the wings. And Harry started out um, on an even bigger wingsuit than this, which actually had an 11-foot wingspan. Now, I can't even begin to fathom how on earth, you know, that would work. So, uh, I've seen a rough sketch of it, and because they haven't got the original anymore, because it broke. He was doing a jump, a uh, display jump, and uh, this 11-foot wingspan um, got broken in the door on one side. And the guys, what they used to do is, he would be loaded on a ladder, and because the, they couldn't get in with the wings open, and he'd fold the wings down like this, and they'd load the ladder at an angle, and he'd be pulled in from the side, um, and then he'd kind of back out and drop out of the aircraft. Anyway, his team broke one of the spars uh, as they were loading him. But they decided it's probably best not to worry him, so don't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> so Harry gets to altitude, none the wiser, what is normal, does his usual kind of weird shuffle out the back, arms out, everything, legs out, off he goes. Obviously realises just about after the slipstream's hit him that something's radically wrong as he's now orbiting the sky. And uh, <coughs> it away, deploys, and lands, and uh, he says, uh, well, why didn't you tell me, chaps? So I didn't want to worry, Harry. No, you're a warrior. Thanks. Harry, however, survived. Um, incredible character, and went on and continued. And Harry, if you ever want to read just the most extraordinary book about daring do and the early days of parachuting, the Yorkshire Birdman, it's called. Um, and he's so matter of fact the way he writes. He, he sadly left us in 2000, um, and his, his actual contraption was made of silk and whalebone. So it actually had a bit of flex in it, but it was also very light, because um, there were people who were using tubeless steel and, and quite heavy fabrics. So he, he was onto a good thing. But the interesting thing for me is, if you look at his leg wing, it hasn't actually changed much from what we're doing today. Yes, technology-wise it has, but the physical shape is roughly about right. Um, the arm wings, well, they're good for fancy dress, and they kind of work, but they're not really going to generate a lot of lift. But to be honest with you, in those days, there was no air-to-air -air camera, so he was seen getting on the aircraft, you might have seen a dot spooling around in the sky and then a round parachute, but that was enough. That was pretty exciting. And the fact he survived, I think, most of the crowd were impressed with. So, um, Harry, incredible. Harry's son uh, is a wing commander now retired in the RAF, uh, and I'm in touch with him, because um, when I was doing the project, we were telling him what we were up to. And um, absolutely fascinating chap. And, and the stories that haven't come out yet from him are just incredible. But Harry worked out a release mechanism was really good. And the reason I'm talking through this is because even with technologies this old, I have a mindset that says, what could go wrong? Why did that go wrong? And, and what can we do to ensure that nothing like that happens to us? Now, clearly, I'm not judging when we see it like that, but some of the fundamental principles behind his thinking are there. So, um, jump forward. Uh, kind of barnstorming died out, um, 30s, 40s, obviously, the war came on, so uh, aircraft, pilots, all those kind of people were requisitioned. Uh, and there was no time for that kind of fun. Um, afterwards, uh, there was military parachuting and there were a few people doing things. But the wingsuit had kind of gone into a kind of stasis. It went quite quiet. And then this chap came along um, in the early 90s. He is called Patrick de Guyon. He was a French baron. I say was because tragically he also died. Um, but he actually invented the first safe wingsuit. 
So this suit is virtually identical to my first suit. Uh, and it has a cutaway system on it whereby you pull a couple of tabs on the side and it releases a series of Teflon cables which unstitch. Um, just with interlocking, the Teflon cable goes through the interlocking area, you pull it and away it goes. Great. Uh, Patrick was always one for adventure. He was a millionaire playboy, effectively. Um, some great, great stories about Patrick. That's actually flying over the Grand Canyon, as you do, because he wanted to. Uh, and that's a plaster supporter in a probably a 60 degree dive angle by the looks of it, which he decided he would get back into. So he got out, went down, and flew back into it. <laughs> You've got to love the French. <laughs> but he was pushing boundaries, and we need people like this to push the boundaries, excite the imagination, and go forward and take us the next step forward. And sometimes those people don't make it, and that's really, really sad. But it's brilliant they're around, because life would be very dull without them. And the fact actually here in Brooklyn is that it's the same genes of people like this that flow all around this place. So, Patrick was good, um, up until the point where, let's just say, um, he took off an interesting um, tobacco plant in Hawaii, uh, whilst doing some work on his equipment, and he managed to stitch his parachute into the actual container system. So that when he deployed, nothing came out. And tragically, Patrick had a habit of um, deploying very low. I mean very low, around 1,500 feet. I deployed typically 4,000 feet maximum, lowest 3,000 feet. At 1,000 feet at terminal velocity, you have five seconds. If you are in a head-down orientation, e.g. you've not got the standard drag, because terminal velocity for a flat person is around 120 miles per hour. But if you're flying on your head, the record is now actually over 300. Um, if you're in a wingsuit, I'm now flying as slowly as 26. But if you're tipped onto your head, flying radically from that, you can rapidly get yourself into around 120 miles, 150 miles an hour very, very quickly. So, you know, if you're only deploying at 1,000 feet, 1,500 feet, you're giving yourself such small margins. Uh, and tragically, he deployed his reserve, but his reserve reached what we call line stretch. So the lines came off, the parachute was about to open, when unfortunately he ran out of altitude. So that was very, very sad. But he lived the most extraordinary life. Um, if anyone Googles him and looks up what he's done, he's did some crazy things. Free falling into Venezuelan caves, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, but yeah, very, very sad. There's a theme here, isn't there? Wingsuit is quite dangerous, at least in the early days. So, cutaways are good. Um, smoking wacky wacky whilst doing rigging is bad. Personal, um, personal history here, I started wingsuiting in 2001, um, I saw Patrick doing it, and I saw a commercial wingsuit that had just been produced, so I contacted him and said, I'd really like to get hold of one of your suits, okay, what's your experience, well clearly none of the wingsuit, um, but what's your experience in terms of flying and how you fly your body, um, because there are different disciplines in skydiving that you can do which help you. So, um, normal flat falling just out of the aircraft, which you often see with the formation skydivers, uh, I do what we call free fly, which is um, flying in all orientations. So I can fly on my head, it's more like gymnastics, I can fly in a sit position, I can fly stand, I can walk. Um, they're dynamically unstable positions, so it's like an aerobatic aircraft on the edge. You have to understand your CFG very, very carefully, and you have to understand uh, if you're losing instability, how to regain it. Because your fall rate changes quite rapidly. So if I'm flying in a sit position, I'm typically doing 150 miles per hour over someone who's doing 120. So if they've got out for me in the aircraft and I go off them, I can catch them up and have a closing rate of 30 miles per hour on top of them. If I'm flying head down, I can be doing over 200 miles per hour and have a very, very fast closing speed. 
So you've got to be really aware of all these kind of issues. So the right hand side there um, is the suit that I'm currently flying. On the left hand side is my first suit, which you'll note is very similar to that first suit um, that you saw commercially available. I've worked as a test pilot for um, one of the manufacturers um, on a number of the suits that he's released uh, and I give feedback on what works. Um, he actually tests them himself first and then kind of sends them to us once he's fairly content that we're not going to kill ourselves. Because, um, you know, brand image is everything. No, he does actually care. Um, the suit on the right now has become incredibly complex simply because what we're doing with them, um, we're flying for up to four minutes free fall. Now, with four minute free fall and 140 miles per hour forward speed, um, I could do seven or eight miles off the drop zone. If I've got a tailwind in the right direction, I can go 10 or even 12 miles with the right strong winds in winter. So you've got to be really aware because actually our commercial flying radius around the drop zone is three miles. So I just need to be really careful I'm not heading off into the boonies. Uh, and one of the biggest problems I have actually with new students when I'm teaching them is that they're ecstatic. They get out of the aircraft, they go, Yeah, that's lovely, but we need to head back to the drop zone. So I then tell them, fly in front of them and indicate we need to return home. Um, we still get the odd one who, even after I've done that, continues in a straight line and takes time to pull and fortunately deploy. And then they find they're four miles away from the drop zone and I make them jump with a mobile phone so they call me and tell me roughly where they are. So um, the advancements have happened quite a lot now. So we've got carbon fiber fins. Why have we got the fins? We have now flying forwards so fast with the suit uh, that basically what we're seeing is that the suit loses stability. Uh, and why does it lose stability? Because we've moved the position of the wing. So on the left-hand seat there, what you can see is the wing actually stretches from the heel to the heel. And that left us with our feet facing downwards, and they act very nicely as two horizontal stabilizers. We then thought, well, actually, they're inducing drag, and they're kind of limiting what we can do with them. So we moved the actual leading edge of the wing, the lower leg wing, um, to the tip of our toes. Well, that worked beautifully. Uh, and what it did was it made a much cleaner lower leg wing. Uh, we didn't have the drag there, um, but we also discovered, or I discovered, that it made us dynamically quite unstable. Um, I just got sent this suit, it's called a Viper, which is quite appropriate because it bit. And, uh, not this one. Uh, and I got out of the aircraft at Dunkerswell, and my standard pattern is to exit the aircraft. I've got a beautiful view, I can see across the Wales on my right hand side, I can see down to Cornwall on my left and the whole of the Devon and Dorset coastline, it's absolutely stunning. Good visual there, I can see back up the Jurassic coast um, and uh, I'll, I'll pick a heading and I'll hold on the aircraft. I'm always last out the aircraft because I'm slowest so I'm not going to overtake anyone. So I get out the aircraft and I'm on the heading and I'm flying along. And I've got out and you get out like this because you don't want the wing actually uh, you know, inflating too early and getting anywhere near the tail. So I step out the aircraft, inflate the wing. This is incredible. Pressurization is amazing. Suit's flying absolutely beautifully. Brilliant. Right, I'll just induce a little turn and head home. And I'll start turning. And as soon as I start turning, it inverts me, puts me on my head, and starts spinning. So this is interesting. So I have a series of recovery drills, because you don't go and test fly these suits unless you kind of have some get out. So what I do is, I uh, collapse the wings. And, and that that's kind of stops the speed of the spin. And then I put an arch on, and that kind of orientates me back onto a belly-to-earth position. And then I gently bring all the wings back out and start flying. Okay, well, that was interesting. Maybe I was a bit radical on that last turn. So I do an even gentler turn. <laughs> Off we go again. So I go back out, recovery, drill, recovery. I've still got about 8,000 feet. 
So at this point, um, I've got a bit of a dilemma. Where I wish to get back to the drop zone is, is actually in my, in my peripheral. It's here, and I'm flying forward so fast that my turn rate, all I'm doing is orbiting the drop zone. So I thought, I, I don't really want to go for that roller coaster ride again. So I'm in Devon, it's fields, it's farms. So I looked across, that looks like a nice field. We'll go over there, we'll deploy very gently at 5,000 feet, we'll go and land in the field. And I touched down this field. And um, this chap came over in a land trailer within about 30 seconds. Oh, fantastic, because normally you're walking for miles and having a chat with the sheep and the cattle to go back. And uh, he came up and he said, are you all right, are you all right? And I said, yeah, no, fine, thanks. And I said, just, uh, you know, flying, I mean, to explain what to do. And he said, um, I thought you were tangled in your canopy. Because, of course, this fabric is so huge that when you see it on the person, it's, it's this big, big pile of material. Uh, it's bright orange as well on the prototype I was flying. So anyway, he took me back, gave me a lift back and dropped it. On the way back, I was talking to him, and uh, by the time we'd finished the kind of 10-minute journey back from the village, he said, um, where do I sign up for a skydive? <laughs> I've just told you the horror story. <laughs> really? He said, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, we've moved on. We now find this suit, and, and, and the upshot of all that wacky research, because we didn't have a wind tunnel to really test this in, um, was we fitted the carbon fibre blades. And I can tell you, when I exited the aircraft for the first time with the blades, it was quite a focusing moment. They were rock solid, that was great. And then I turned and they banked, fantastic. And then I put it into a dive and banked, nothing, absolutely perfect. So, um, you know, it was a bit trial and error. And the funny thing is, it's kind of like early days test and evaluation. Um, you know, there are certain things that we just cannot do um, on the computer and simulation, which you now do with pretty much all the aircraft that we are now developing and looking at. And, you just can't do it, you've got to go and try it. We've just, as of September last year, opened a, a, a winter out in Stockholm, uh, which is, originally it was developed uh, post-World War II, um, and it got developed and used for all of the aircraft like the Saab Vegan and the aerodynamics around those. So we're now actually flying in there. And it's open to commercial, so if anyone wants to go along and fly a wingsuit without having any skydiving experience, you are tethered, so you are tied to the ceiling and the floor, so you can't actually go into any walls, but you can fly a wingsuit. Um, and once you've actually got beyond the tethering, we untether you, put you on a dog lead. I call it dog lead, not it looks like one. And we walk you around in there just to make sure that you're secure and you can fly a wingsuit. You need never step in an aircraft. <laughs> I can see the hands going up now. <laughs> so, um, when you see aerodynamics, um, that's the really basic stuff. Uh, we obviously have pitch, roll, and yaw. Um, the issue with the bigger suits is, as soon as you uh, have a wing which connects from your wrist down to your ankle, any input you move on the upper body has an effect on the lower body. In the early wing suits, the wings just went to the hip. So you could move around like this and actually get away with quite a lot. Um, we discovered um, on, on those first jumps on the very first suits, which is around 2000 and 2003, the first big suits came out. Uh, we discovered when we were flying those that basically they reacted quite violently if you put in too big an input. So the input when I'm flying this, it's virtually imperceptible. I can fly almost by thinking where I want to go. Uh, obviously if I'm doing a radical dive I'm putting bigger input in. But if I want to just go uh, fairly you know, uh, gently around a bank turn, I just think it and I fly it. Uh, it's there. <coughs> a little bit more. Um, You've got a level axis here that you can actually work on in terms of um, variables uh, and you can mix up those. That's kind of the perfect flight position you really want for maximum glide. Um, 
Weight is a massive factor. So I dropped a stone in weight when I was training for the world record. Uh, because every, every um, kilo equates, I think it's about five kilos in fact, every five kilos equates to about 10 seconds of additional free fall. Which when you put that on a high altitude jump makes a massive difference in terms of the time frame. But you then have to balance that because you have to retain sufficient strength to be able to fly the suit. Because after about two and a half minutes of flying the suit, your arms are very tired. So you then have to start thinking about actually the regime for how you fly the suit. So I would fly the suit with my wrists, a relaxed male bent, but I've still got the structure I need, and I would relax my wrists and fly with my inner arms. So you have to think about all these kind of aspects and be very self-aware when you actually fly. Having said that we do a lot of the testing um, remotely, um, we do also do some wind tunnel testing, and we are able to get some interesting um, data on drag coefficients, where the turbulent areas are, and the problem is people are testing the wingsuits on their own. You can't test them on your own. You have to test them with the person who's going to fly them. And you have to test them with not just a dummy, because that's originally a mannequin stuff in it, because all our bodies are different. And those tiny imperceptible differences make a huge difference. Anyone who's done any test flying will tell you a couple of bumps or a different shape or a different angle uh, attack on the wing or the fuselage will have a huge difference to how that aircraft handles. It's exactly the same with the wingsuit. Uh, and also the actual parachute system on the back. Because um, the parachute system is made of different material and therefore induces drag. And it also has behind it effectively a dead area or burble of air. So uh, that's quite a challenge. Shot on the right is um, some test flying we were doing out in Portugal. Absolutely beautiful drop zone. Um, we arrived out in Portugal and they were putting us out on the uh, normal position they drop parachutes at, which is about three miles away. We were getting back over the drop zone within about 30 seconds because of the forward speed having to turn around and head back out and keep doing this. They said, this is no good, because we were trying to film at the time as well. So in the end, uh, we got clearance them to take us eight and a half miles away from the drop zone, and we flew back with the coastal on the side, and I just flew a, a, a flat platform, which is great. But it was really, really real eye-opening in terms of performance, um, because I needed to train in such a way that I could work the muscles without having to put in lots of turns, because on the record, I was not planning on putting lots of turns in. So, um, I'm just going to show you this. This is give you a bit of a feel for the speeds. This is about half the max speed I can do. Um, what you're seeing is a shot from uh, my camera guy that I work with, who's flying a very similar suit. Uh, he's flying it at 90 degrees to me. This is where trust comes in. Um, so he's flying at 90 degrees to me, and I tell him to get out of the aircraft and hold heading, and don't change anything. Don't change your forward speed, don't change your descent rate, don't move left or right. Is it all right? And then we did this. That's me on the left at the dot. So, I'll just show you that again. The data, because we have a data logger which takes all this. I was doing that's literally half the speed I did for the record. So it gives you an idea of the dynamics we're involving, um, and that's why I said trust. So that individual is probably one of three or four individuals in the world I would jump with and happily do that because we were, I wouldn't take any closer. Uh, that's using a wide-angle lens. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of trust. But um, we were actually doing that, not just for the shot, um, we were actually doing some um, performance runs in terms of working out how much lift we're getting from a base position. And it's very difficult to do that without having a fixed marker. And he was the fixed marker. I mean, lots of quite good data from that because he's flying a data plot as well. And we were able to overlay the two GPS plots and see exactly what lift I was getting as I came out. 
uh, and I could then work out the forward speeds and what my optimal glide path was. Puts the rest of the world in perspective, it does, it really does. A dull day of work, you can do that. So, um, to understand a different perspective, um, this is one of my students, this is actually a first job by one of my students, and he had done the most textbook perfect job. And what I mean by that is, when I'm, when I'm training someone from scratch, we go through on the ground, and we drill all the muscle memory and all the safety drills, um, navigation, um, deployment, because a normal deployment for a normal skydiver is he's in free fall. Imagine the airflow is coming this way, I'm heading towards you all. And I'm in free fall, and I put this arm up here, this arm goes back here, and I grab my pilot sheet, I throw my pilot sheet, and I come back into free fall. And my pilot sheet comes off the back, pulls a bridle line off, pulls a pin, the tent opens, parachute goes up, ball opens in about four seconds. Lovely. If I'm flying a wingsuit and I attempt to do that, I have a couple of problems. First of all, you can't raise your arms in a wingsuit above this position because of the structure of the wing. You just can't do it. The only way you'd be able to do it is if you physically release the wings, which you can do if you want to, but it's really not good. That's there for an emergency. So what we actually do is we teach the students to collapse everything and do this symmetrically. Symmetry is everything in, in flight. Sometimes. However, if I collapse only my upper wings and I have my leg wing, what I do is I create a huge amount of drag on my, on my tail wing, which inverts me and gives me into head down position. So I go from flying at around 35, 40, probably about 50 miles an hour on this student wingsuit to a head down position very rapidly. This is what happens. Up to this point, he's been perfect, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is an absolute dream of a student, because so I get some quite interesting students sometimes which require work. <laughs> <laughs> Toe tap, yep, that's a deploy. That's why students deploy at five and a half thousand feet, not three. So, so what's happening here, as you can very clearly see, um, he, he does the toe tap, he forgets to shut the wings off properly because there's a lot of pressure on the wings, and so it instantly puts him head down. Fortunately, my training appears to have kicked in, all his common sense, one or two. Um, and what he actually does, no, I stopped it there, he did survive. Um, <coughs> what, what actually happens is he flies out and goes back in and he realises the error of his ways quite rapidly uh, and closes the wings and he has a very good deployment. And the problem is in that situation, as an instructor to him, I can't actually do anything. I'm not realistically going to be able to get down after him or do anything. Um, the, the key thing to everyone understands here is that actually even if he did nothing, he'd still end up in a perfectly good parachute. So we all jump, uh, mandated in the UK now, what we call AAD, which stands for Automatic Activation Device. So the Automatic Activation Device is a very smart little bit of kit, uh, which basically is analysing, at the start of the day when it's turned on, what the air pressure on the ground is. It then analyses and increments the air pressure as you climb to altitude. And it knows what speed you're doing. And it's set so that if you pass through 750 feet, which I know doesn't sound a lot, at more than 75 miles per hour, which is far slower than you'll be doing in freefall, but it's far more than you'll be doing under canopy, so it knows that you shouldn't be there, you should be under canopy by this point, it fires a small explosive charge, and what it does is it fires a razor blade down a tube, which cuts a little piece of material which is currently holding in the reserve pilot tube, which is a large compressed spring, which fires off your back. That was invented in 91, uh, it's so far saved over 14,000 worldwide. It's a very interesting statistics on which countries use it a lot. <laughs> Certain parts of uh, South America. <laughs> Just show you that one more time. 
I was telepathically telling him what to do here. Please, 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 Paul. So this is the signal you currently see lying down on the floor um, beforehand. Um, it's not all plain sailing within any project. You have to develop and understand, you know, the performance of the suit. And I'm going to talk about a lot of the area side of it in terms of my physiology and how I survive at that altitude. Um, but the suit, first of all, we had to get flying perfectly before we even worry too much about the oxygen systems. In fact, we're all doing it in parallel. Um, there was a huge amount of activity going on at night because my team were based in Canada and America. So I'd come off my normal day job um, in defence, pick up the telecons from 8 o'clock onwards, and then we'd do calls uh, with the West Coast of America um, and our mission systems experts on, on where we were with the auction systems. Uh, and there's a, there's a story behind that. Um, when I got the uh, parachute that we were to use, because the sponsors wanted their logo over it, uh, for supper, which is great. Uh, we work out the volume of the parachute and how it's going to fit into my container system. And all the sizing is, is done perfectly. And we worked out that 135 square foot canopy would be ideal. Um, I'm used to be 120 square foot, so it's even bigger margin, great. And the artwork wasn't going to take up much additional pack volume, fantastic. So it'll all fit in the bag. Well, that's quite important because the container system, when you deploy it, um, it can't be loose, but it can't be super tight, because if it's super tight, this happens. Bear in mind that when you see me move, I'm going for the deployment, and the deployment should happen in about three to four seconds. Hands are enough to deploy. Oh, there it is. So that, that was eight seconds from actually reaching back to deploy. Now, I'm... I'm that's probably the longest deployment I've ever had. Now, the temptation would have been to think, oh my God, reach back, start messing around. Um, my, my initial thoughts were, no, don't do that. Um, I've got a lot of airflow flowing across my back now. I've collapsed everything in, give it a chance, and, and it worked. Um, we tested it on the ground afterwards, and it, it, was, it was just so tight, we couldn't believe it, so we did some modifications. Um, so what you can also see there, which is the comedy, comedy joy of flying wingsuits, is, if you really like zippers, this is the sport for you. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many zippers on this thing, it's a complete nightmare. So, you can't obviously move your arms. I can just about get to my rear risers, which give me a little bit of steering, because the first thing I'm going to do is I check the traffic, make sure there's nothing around me. There really isn't, because everything else has landed. But I still want to make sure I'm heading in the right direction, etc. You then have to unzip the arm wings. Great. You then have to unzip the leg wing. Now, for aerodynamic efficiency, the zip is behind the wing, because it can cause some drag otherwise. Well, that's lovely, but what's happening is I'm flying forward with the parachute around 25 miles per hour. So it pushes the wing back into the zip, as I discovered the first time I tried to unzip it without holding the wing out of the way, which then jars the zip. If you've got a jarred zip and you try and land in this thing, you're like a kind of drunk penguin. So you have to pull the wing across, bend down, unzip, tuck it to the side, pull the wing across, bend down, unzip, these are all custom made to fit very tightly, so you have to be quite flexible, and I'm not that flexible. So you then get all that up, and then you have to tuck it all up, um, and then you have to, under your chest strap, collapse your slider, which is the white square of fabric immediately above my head before you get to the parachute. Uh, and that's there basically to slow the parachute down from moving too fast, because if you didn't have that parachute, it collapse open, uh, and well, it used to kill people when they first started doing it, and it caused lots of back injuries. So um, that's not good and then you undo your chest strap and then you can fly home. So, um, that was the suit. We were kind of happy with where the suit was going in development wise, um, but you're going to a really hostile environment, pretty much the most hostile environment on the planet in terms of the atmosphere. It actually gets warmer 
as you go above the altitudes we were targeting. So we were going to be in that really nice frosty section um, where we were looking at potentially minus 50 to minus 70 degrees. It was actually quite warm when we got out, it was only minus 56. So you've then got wind chill. Uh, we are flying forwards at such a speed that the wind chill takes us down to around 130 degrees C. So the first thing you think about is obviously your body. Um, and you're thinking, okay, well, that's not great, I want to be warm. Um, so I can do a lot of things protective. I can wear a, a suit underneath to protect me. Uh, and I did, I had a, a microfiber suit, which is fantastic. Um, I've got a full face helmet on, that's great. Um, I've got thermal socks on, great. The suit itself is actually a really good insulator because it's, it's, it's you know, zero porosity nylon. So it's ramming a layer of air around me. The most vulnerable area is my hands and they're quite useful. So my hands are what's going to actually save me if anything goes wrong here. So um, I actually made a jump from 30,000 feet in 2005 uh, and I used some conventional, what was supposed to be really good gloves. I had Gore-Tex liners and these gloves on, and I got out of the aircraft, and within about a minute and a half of the flight, I couldn't feel my hands below my wrists. And we had a drill at 14,000 feet that I would do, where I would do that, and I'd you know, see that my hands were working, uh, but I was doing this, and I physically couldn't feel any pressure on touching my hands. Just couldn't feel it, because they just got on that numb. So when I went in to deploy, I could reach back around, grab the pilot sheet, symmetrically shut all this off, and throw it. Uh, muscle memory worked, uh, and I reached it and grabbed it and threw it. But all I could feel was my wrists, and it was only about three minutes on the canopy that I started to get the feeling back in my hands. Everything else I had to do visually and you know take it off and do it. So I didn't want to do that again, and I now knew that we were going to be in a flight position with a higher performance wingsuit at a higher altitude for a longer period of time. I also have auction systems that I need to think about very carefully. If things go wrong, I have a series of protocols to deal with. So, the wingsuit performance is really great because you want to set these records, but you also have to decide how much performance you want versus the safety, because I still need to be able to deploy safety. We could make this suit probably tune up about 15%, 20% faster, and I actually flew a suit without all the oxygen systems, which was like that, but we found that around deployment time, it was, it was getting a little bit sketchy, uh, and I wasn't prepared to take that on because all the training we're doing, we're only flying for typically four minutes. On the altitude backwards, I'm flying for near 10 minutes plus. And therefore, when I'm flying that long, the fatigue is building up. Um, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm very conscious that if I have an emergency, whilst I'll get a quick burst of adrenaline, actually being able to deal with an emergency, which could be a spinning malfunction, um, it could be a pilot sheet in tow, I could be on my back, any of those scenarios, I need to be able to deal with them very, very rapidly. So, you've got to think about that, and I also had to be confident that if we spun, I could recover it. This is a big suit, and when you're putting in over 200 mile per hour airflow into it, um, and you go into a spin, you can get what we call G-log. So you can build up a spin so fast <coughs> in the suit, that you actually, if you don't deal with it in around one and a half, two seconds, and start initiating the recovery procedures um, at, at the minimum, you can go into G-log and blackout. Uh, there was a case of a guy um, about six years ago now in the, in, in the US who did just that. Um, the other guys could fly around him, but they couldn't get into him because he was spinning so fast, he was like a blade. Uh, and he tragically went in. Uh, he didn't have an AAD, which was ridiculous. Um, there's just there's no reason for not using it. So anyway, um, that was the challenge there. The suit had to be what it was. On top of that, I obviously need um, auction systems which will you know, keep me alive. And I'll talk in detail about that in a second. 
But the other side, which you would think was obvious, is well, clearly I need aircraft to get to this altitude. Um, and the, the problem is, uh, I've got a lot of great military connections and very kind people who know me from old and know that because of my background in developing safety for Eurofighter, I'm not just some bloke who's gone down the shed at the bottom of the garden over the weekend and come up with this idea. But actually, military aircraft aren't cleared to go 42,000 feet unpressurised. They have no need to. They can fly their pressurised fast jets. Uh, the latest A400 will get very close to that. Um, but there's no need for them to go unpressurised. And they do not have oxygen systems on board those aircraft which are cleared um, to go to the altitude because it's not a requirement. They might well be able to do it, but it's not a requirement. If it's not cleared, you're not flying. So I spent some time with Airbus um, and uh, the CEO of um, IAD, um, who obviously own Airbus, is a guy called Tom Enders. Tom Enders happens to be an avid skydiver, which is always helpful when the CEO of a major company actually is a skydiver, because he understands where you're coming from. So he said, look, I'm really up for this. Um, you know, whatever we can do would be great for the A400M. And we went through all, all the issues, and the, the problem we had at the time was we just could not justify how they would get a clearance program into their existing program to get to 42,000 feet on pressurised. So um, that was really, really annoying. We then hunted around. Um, so the aircraft you see on, on the uh, right-hand side there um, is a um, very special aircraft, which uh, is a Cessna Grand Caravan, which has been um, converted with a £2 million engine in it, uh, on top of the existing normal engine and developed by a company called Texas Turbines, TX Turbines. Uh, that allows it to climb to 37,000 feet on a single turbine engine, which is just phenomenal. So uh, the goal was we made two jumps. Why two jumps? Um, if we're going to go for maximum altitude, if we're going to go for longest distance, if we're going to go for maximum time and speed, you cannot do them all in one jump. I cannot go with speed and get maximum time because my orientation for speed is slightly nosed down and I'm not on my maximum glide path. So therefore, I managed to persuade them this is a good idea, we do two jumps. So the first jump will be with a fixed wing aircraft. The second jump, we need to find an aircraft that will get us um, up to 42,000 feet. And the target for that first jump was 37,500 to 38,000 feet. The problem with that was, um, there's no fixed wing aircraft that will do that or clear to do that, uh, unpressurized as mentioned. Uh, so we turned to the oldest technology that was in aviation, the balloon. I cannot tell you how many people we spoke to who are very proficient, senior, high altitude balloon pilots. You just said no. That's nuts. Um, we had quite a few who said yes, we're up for that. And then six months later when you said, okay, let's commit now. Let's get on, let's do this. They all went very quiet. And then we found these two guys, one of whom is Irish. <laughs> um, there's a thief. Um, not French. Well, actually, the other guy's French Canadian, so there is a thief. Um, and they said, We've already been to 40,000 feet. I said, Really? They said, Yeah. I said, Wow, what, what auction kit do you use? Oh, standard auction kit. What do you mean, standard auction kit? Oh, well, it's um, just the kind of pre breathe bottles and free flow. And I had on board with me um, an aeromedical expert who does all the aeromedical um, kind of globally, um, fantastic guy called Dr. Henry Luper. And um, <coughs> when I briefed him back on this, he said, you've got to be joking. I said, yeah, I know. The guys did it. They got a 40,000 feet back with no issues, which is just a miracle. So the reason it's a miracle, I explained it in a little minute. But um, yeah, that was just pushing it. So these are the kind of challenges we face. The other issue you've got is with that cold, uh, it tends to kill systems. So I'm breathing. As we're breathing here now, 
So we're breathing ambient oxygen around one bar, one pressure atmosphere, uh, and we have moisture in our air. Cold morning, breathe out, you see you All that moisture has to go somewhere. Well, that's fine on the ground, but as you go up, it freezes. Uh, and you have to do what's called a pre-breathe before you exit the aircraft. And the idea of the pre-breathe is, is that we remove all the nitrogen from our bodies, which reduces the risk of hypoxia. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about hypoxia effects in a little bit. But the problem is, with that, is that basically if you don't have a solution to keep that moisture warm, or at least get it away from your body, it will freeze in critical components of your mask. So we also had to design and fix that. So that was one set of challenges. I'm always up for an easy life. So then you've got to think about navigation post-exit. Um, I'm going to be exiting in commercial airspace. There's nowhere else to kind of do it with these guys. Um, amazingly, the guys both from the US and Canada, which are the two locations we selected to jump from, um, were absolutely on board and, and fantastic in support of uh, and they said, look, we will clear you a 20-mile corridor by 5 miles wide. Just fly straight. So that's what we did. So what you can see here is, first of all, the picture on the left here, I'm showing you for a reason. Um, you can see how rapidly the wingsuit flies as soon as you're out of the actual aircraft. Now, I have to be really, really aware of the pilot and his aircraft. Because on a normal jump run day, and that was, that's taking 15,000 feet over Devon, uh, our running speed that we're making the aircraft is around 110 miles per hour. That's great. Uh, and I can fly like that and we can get relatively close, but I know I'm safe. The problem is, as I climb to altitude, the aircraft creates sufficient lift in the lower density of those altitudes, and you know, being it's not a fast jet with a jet on it, uh, means that it has to fly as fast as it can. Well, I've, I've got to get out of it. So, when you're at that top end, you're getting out of an aircraft which is going to be going over 200 miles per hour with a large nylon sleeping bag attached to you. Uh, that's not a Photoshop shot, that shot in the middle, that is real. That was taken in the late 90s uh, in the States, and that is a commercial biz jet going underneath um, a four-way skydiving team. And that was a frame grab taken from a video. So you also have to make sure you know exactly who else is in your airspace and how it's being managed. Now, that's great, down to around 18,000 feet. Why 18,000 feet? Well, below 18,000 feet, I'm on visual flight rules. So, actually, home builds, people puddle jumping, etc., are, are about and flying, and they're not being directed and told about you know, the fact that there's some lunatic and a sleeping bag flying through their airspace. So, uh, I have to be really aware, and I have to start being really um, careful about what I'm looking for. I cannot just simply focus on the wingsuit and enjoy the view. I'm actually doing a workload. I'm looking around for anything that's moving. Um, I'm in such an altitude that I can actually look behind me. So I can look between my legs and see what's coming. The only bit is my blind spot is from behind, so as long as the measurement doesn't come me out of the sun, I'm okay. What are the big green blobs? Um, so at the top, uh, you've got um, California. Uh, that is Yolo County, California, about an hour and a half um, up from San Francisco. And that's our drop zone for the first jump from 38,000. And the black triangle. Uh, each of the points is the potential exit points that we were looking at. And then the green shows me the radius that I can actually fly. So that was around the 20 mile radius that I could achieve depending on the wind directions of the day. Uh, on the bottom, um, similar, um, that is Canada. Uh, and this is just where we were jumping uh, off one of the Great Lakes. Uh, and again, that was the proposed exit point of where I would go. 
The reason it's more um, cheesy on that one is because we had a very fixed position we had to launch from because the balloon cannot just wander off into commercial airspace uh, and it needs a set period it can come down and so they were very fixed whereas with the aircraft we can actually change position because obviously the aircraft can get back to where it needs to whereas the balloon goes where it will want to a degree. Um, so, so that's quite a challenge. On top of that, I've got to log all this because otherwise it's no good landing and telling the nice people at Guinness and the FAI, the Federation Aeronautique Internationale, who log all these records, um, that I did it. I need to prove to them I did it. So they sent along an official observer. Um, he tapes and seals two GPS units to my helmet, which track the entire jump. Um, and they have a battery which also has to be protected from the cold. So that then has a thermal heat pad taped over the top of that. Um, they then want a video record as well, so I have three cameras, one facing forwards, one facing up my chest, one facing back. They all have to be protected from the cold as well, because at these temperatures they'll last about two seconds even in the aircraft. So they have thermal heat pads as well on each of them taped on. So you start to get a picture of all the stuff that's now going on me, and this is before we even talk about our auction kit. This is great for training. Um, this gives me glide path, it gives me forward speed, it gives me my vertical descent rate. Um, it gives me my angle of attack and it actually gives me my GPS position as well. I'm able to take that data and I'm able to put it into a map thing so I can see exactly how I'm flying. I can see what stages of flight uh, I was in and how my performance on the suit went. And this is a really, really powerful tool um, for doing evaluation of the performance. So we use that a lot. Uh, and that, that bit of kit is it's just phenomenal. In terms of size, it's about the size of two matchboxes. It's really tiny. Um, really piece of kit. So we talked about um, time of useful consciousness a little bit, the hypoxia earlier. Um, clearly, it's no good flying a wingsuit if you can't breathe and oxygenate your body because it's a big workload. Time of useful consciousness is an interesting thing. Um, here on the ground, we can breathe infinitely. No problem at all. We're getting good oxygen saturation, um, no issues. Our lungs are designed to deal with the ambient pressure that's flowing around us. That's no problem. As we climb, the pressure drops, uh, the temperature drops. Uh, and we start to have challenges because the density in the oxygen uh, available to us decreases dramatically. So at 20,000 feet, you can actually sit around for around, around 30 minutes or so and you're, you're going to be okay. You, you might start feeling it come on. Officially, if you're fit and healthy, it, it's not too bad. I've sat in the altitude chamber for, for five minutes at 25,000 feet off anything but ambient oxygen and be fine. Uh, I've seen other individuals who've been in there um, who get affected. And the reason they get affected is because... Um, there are varying physiologies that, that come to play. So as you get older, it affects you more. Uh, if you're a smoker, it affects you. And if you're carrying a large amount of weight, it affects you because nitrogen um, sits in the fat cells longer than any other part of your body. And therefore, the onset of potential uh, hypoxia is accentuated by that. As we climb higher in altitude, what we call the time of useful consciousness um, decreases. And what this actually means is that if I'm at 40,000 feet and I come off my oxygen, and I start talking, or my oxygen fails, I have around 15 to 20 seconds before I'm going to lose consciousness. Um, some of you may remember there was a gentleman called Payne Stewart, who was a very famous golfer, um, who tragically, uh, 1999, uh, was in his Learjet um, heading out in the States, and unfortunately they had a depressurization of the cabin, and the oxygen systems had not been reconnected correctly after the last servicing. And the aircraft, being a Learjet, very expensive, um, dropped into autopilot mode and continued on its track because there was no inputs coming from the pilots. 
and unfortunately they scrambled two fighter jets to basically sit alongside and see what was going on because basically the radar plot wasn't responding to anything. Um, the Civil Aviation Authority guys, you know, trying to vector him elsewhere, nothing happening, this thing's just flying off. Uh, and they worked out the fuel load and realised where it was going to go down and they would go in a safe area. But unfortunately, everybody had gone unconscious on board and in fact, uh, they lost their lives. Very sad. But these are the things you've got to think about. Um, and this is where I come back to my history and my safety approach. Safety is at the heart of everything we do. If there is one thing that's not right, we don't wing it and say, oh, it might be okay. We go back to basics and we work out how we fix it. And I had a kind of triple redundancy rule on all the systems we had, all the processes, so that if something went wrong, I had a backup plan. So, for example, if I get out of the aircraft and I have a premature deployment at 38, 40,000 feet, I can't sit around there trying to spiral it down, it's not going to happen. So I actually cut away uh, and release my parachute and go back into freefall to get back down. If I have an oxygen failure, um, I don't try and attempt the record and be a hero. I go into a stoop dive, I collapse the wings, I put it on its head and I get down to 25,000 feet minimum and I know I can breathe again. So you have to think about all these protocols. And there are, there are interesting levers that you pull on either side of this. So for example, with the first scenario, where I have a premature deployment, obviously we can be really careful about designing that out and making sure everything's tight and good. But if it were to happen, um, I actually have to um, disconnect a system that normally when I deploy my uh, main, cut away my main parachute, it deploys my reserve for me. So I'm giving up that safety aspect, but then actually I've got an automatic activation device. So yeah, there are all these little challenges that we have to keep thinking about. So in preparation for that, I didn't simply you know, read the TUC chart and say, it's all right, I'll breathe for 15 seconds and hold my breath. Uh, what I did was, I went to Kinetic, uh, and having worked there for 10 years, um, they were fantastic. And I went into the altitude chamber and I did some training in the altitude chamber, which is why I'm sitting there with the Russian cosmonaut hat on the right hand side, at the top. Uh, and we basically you do maths um, and you look at how you behave off oxygen on oxygen so you know what the behaviours are like. Obviously you're not doing maths in the aircraft in the real job. But what you are doing is you are buddy-buddy checking and you're checking your systems and you're looking at your kit and making sure everything works. And once in a while, uh, usually about every 25, 30 seconds, I would talk to the pilot or jump master on my comms and we'd check each other. Because it's not just me being there pre donna we are all responsible for each other on the flight. Um, because I have to ensure that everybody gets back safely. Really important to me because it's a team effort. It's not just I might be jumping out, it's a team. So, it looks like the press on the right hand side there. And the reason is because that, that large kind of vacuum cleaner type object that I, I'm sitting on, I wore that for three weeks at home. And what it does is it reduces the oxygen level to the similar oxygen you experience at 13,000 feet. And what that does is it builds up a resistance to hypoxia. So, uh, traditionally, what the athletes used to do is uh, before they go to the Olympics or Commonwealth Games or whatever it is you're doing, you go out to Switzerland, you go run the mountains, uh, you go and sit in a big tent up top and sleep high, train low, and all that good stuff. Um, our budget was really tight because actually we were trying to do this as tightly as we could to raise as much money as we can. So, all the money for funding, none of it goes into this. The sponsors pay for this. But we still wanted to make sure everything went into, into the satellite. <coughs> so, a uh, fantastic group called the Altitude Centre contacted me and said, Look, we'll loan you this kit. I said, ah, oh, brilliant. Little did I know the joys it would bring me. Uh, three weeks sitting on this thing, and it's, it's not what I would call normal taste of ambient air that we're used to. It really was like sucking through a Dyson vacuum cleaner. But it did the job, it, it helped, I think. Um, on the left bottom there, what you see there um, is the pressure breathing kit. 
So, um, very lucky. Um, the tall gentleman there leaning over me, um, looking relatively happy about the situation, is a guy called Dr. Henry Looper. Henry is pretty much the world expert on high altitude aeromedical jumping and flight. Um, he is the senior engineer um, uh, for aeromedical at Kinetic and is just the loveliest guy. Henry said, look, come on down, I'll get you on the pressure breathing rig because it's worth you experiencing it before you actually jump it because it's quite a different experience. So why pressure breathing? As we go to altitude, we're on 100% O2. We've already done the pre-breathe, we've cleared all the nitrogen from our system. That takes an hour and a half on the ground before we even take off, so I'm seeing the aircraft pre-breathing. We then go up to altitude, and we're still breathing 100% O2, and we're ambiently breathing it, so we're controlling the breathing. There's a free flow, but we're controlling when we breathe in, when we breathe out. As you pass through 35,000 feet, the uh, atmospheric pressure has dropped to around 14% uh, of what we have here. At that point, your lungs are increasingly finding it difficult to work because there's not sufficient external pressure on them to work. So we have a regulator on the chest, which is linked to my oxygen system. Uh, my oxygen system is designed on my, uh, to be linked into a central console on the aircraft, which feeds myself, the halo jump master, who's my specialist, who's monitoring me in the pilot, and vice versa. And it starts to push the oxygen into me. Uh, anyone who's dived, um, you, you kind of know that sound. Well, it's the reverse. This regulator forces the air into you, and you have to sink into the cycle with the pressure breathing regulator. Um, I was fine, I was quite happy with it, um, but he said it's a bit of a weird situation, uh, and it's a very strange sensation if you've not experienced it. So uh, I'm sitting there, and and you have this cycle going on, and you just get into it. It worked fine, it was great. Um, but I did not want to be experiencing that for the first time having exited the aircraft at 35,000-40,000 feet. Uh, so having that pre-training is absolutely fantastic uh, and really invaluable. So it's all of these other team members that come into play to make those one, two jumps possible. So physical training, um, obviously familiarity with O2 systems in flight is great as well. I can't just wait until the day, so I need to fly with it because I need to determine actually if having that oxygen tank on the left side of my container system um, is actually going to change my CFG. Will it move me forward, backwards, aft? I don't know. In fact, it had very little effect, so it was great. Um, but I need to look at that, I need to see if it's going to induce drag, all those kind of issues. I need to make sure that all this hosing that you see in the top right is sufficiently secured, but I also have enough flexibility that I can move my head and in the event of emergency release it all. So it's going down into the fine detail that makes all of this possible and asking, what if that happens? What if that hose unclips? What do I do? How will I know? And then the bottom right is a, a rather cheesy and sad photo of me in the gym, um, where I had an ex-para um, uh, physical training instructor who decided he would create a regime for me. That's what he said. I said, oh, thank you. I shouldn't have said thank you. Um, he beasted me, basically, for six months. Uh, which was fantastic, because what he did was, he pushed me in terms of my physical fitness beyond, and I keep fairly fit, but he really pushed me. And he developed these um, drills whereby I would go into a flight position and hold. And I started out, I could hold that for seven minutes. After six months, I could hold it for 14 minutes. Now, if you've ever held um, five kilos, which is what I was holding on each arm, and try and hold them statically, that's what I was doing. So it's like holding up a kind of half-filled bucket of water for that period of time, or if you're really classy, a big bottle of champagne. <laughs> so all that time, we're looking at the data analysis, we're going through it, and, and we're working it all out. Uh, this is where we are. Um, 
I'm sitting in the atmosphere just to give you a bit of perspective uh, within the stratosphere. Um, fairly happy up there. Um, so you see, obviously, we mentioned the wind chill. So, we get to the jumps now. I arrived out of California with the team. Um, we looked at 20 years of data, and the weather basically told us that this was the best time to go. Go in, go in late May. It's really good ambient weather, about 65 degrees. Uh, it was 40 degrees, 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's a real problem for us. Um, we've got a limited slot. We are booked in with various clearances that we cannot change. And we have a two-day window. And this heat wave is here. Uh, the jet stream is just doing bizarre things and dumping the weirdest weather systems, and it was sitting on us. So what that does is it gives us a real challenge in terms of the altitude. The aircraft managed to scrape to 35,500 feet, and I had the pilot going, climb rate, 1,000 feet per minute, climb rate, 800 feet per minute, climb rate, 500 feet per minute, climb rate, 100 feet per minute. You need to be getting out shortly. Um, because we were right on the knife edge, because at this point the pilot is flying the aircraft as fast and as cleanly as he can to keep us there. Uh, so at that point it was time to go, and I'll, I'm going to show you the jump in a second. We then moved on to uh, Canada. We had the reverse. We arrived in Canada, and that's actually uh, the jet stream north and south combined into a box. Um, the centre of the box, the bottom square, is, is basically where we were based. So that sat around for 10 days and it rained on us and rained and rained. So we got to do some nice pictures and check out of the balloon and the configuration we had for it. But unfortunately, um, we didn't get to jump, which was very frustrating. However, um, we don't do these things lightly. We said we would only go and make the jump if everything was right. The conditions were not right. Nearly there now. That's just a breakdown of all the kit and the guys who came together uh, from all the different bits of equipment. Um, and it really was a, a team effort of probably about uh, a dozen different companies and about 30 or 40 different people who brought their expertise into it. Uh, and I effectively acted as my own project coordinator and brought the parties together from all the work that I've done in defence. And not a single person on that list charged a penny for it because they knew it was and knew what it was for uh, and, and they wanted to be part of it. So um, the auction kit, uh, we've talked about that, absolutely critical. Um, and the pre-brief situation went through. That kind of Star Wars helmet is a prototype which we came up with and is now being manufactured and used um, and it's being used by certain uh, specialist groups, let's just say, uh, because it protects all the oxygen systems from freezing. Bizarrely, no one was using anything like this beforehand. So that solution was fantastic um, because it resolved it. The uh, little unit in the bottom is the one I talked about previously, uh, which fires off that explosive charge in the razor blade, which re releases my reserve parachute. Again, um, great bit of kit. They designed a specific one for me, which would go to over 40,000 feet because they normally only qualify to 25. So, there's my view. That is my actual view on exit the aircraft. Um, you, you'll see that's after a little bit of uh, disco dancing, which I'll show you in a minute. Uh, that's the Sierra Nevadas on the left-hand side, and that is the aircraft that just exited up there. That is not tampered with. That is the real colour of the sky that I saw. And that's at 7 o'clock in the morning. It was beautiful. Right, so I'm going to show you the jump now. Um, what you're going to see is you're going to see a series of camera shots. Um, from, first of all, you'll see the exit from the camera inside the aircraft. You'll then see the camera mounted on my chest, uh, and then you'll see the camera uh, back view later on. Because the flight is nine minutes long, I did not want to put you through that. So what you'll see is you'll see the exit sequence, which takes about uh, 10, 15, 20 seconds, and then I fast-forwarded it. So you've still got the whole jump, but I fast-forwarded so you can see what I'm doing, because quite frankly, all I'm doing is flying along the motorway. Uh, in a straight line at a very high speed. I was doing about 240, 250 miles an hour during that period. Um, and then it slows back down again for the deployment. Right, I will uh, show you that.
You remember we talked about exiting a speed and the potential for spins. It's the fastest they've ever put anyone out of the aircraft. I actually exited at 260 miles per hour. However, I had spent quite a lot of time doing what we call spin recovery drills. So it took me seven revolutions and around 1,300 feet to recover the, uh, the wingsuit and uh, get it back into the flight position that I wanted. The media loved this. So I'm now picking up a heading. Uh, I'm comfortable and stable and I'm doing about 240 miles per hour forwards and about uh, 40 miles per hour descent rate because I've got a slightly higher descent rate for that angle of attack. You're now seeing the fastened up version and I'm tracking the motorway beneath me. I cover 14 and a half miles along the motorway. Or freeway as the Americans like to know. So as I'm going along, what I'm doing is I'm one looking out for aircraft, because that's still a priority. And two, I'm monitoring my auction systems to make sure that uh, I'm uh, happy about how I'm performing and everything's working and nothing's flattened. Um, and as I approach the lower end of the jump, around around 10,000 to 8,000, I'm already starting out thinking where I'm going to land. Um, where my deployment point is and where I'm going to land. I have on board a series of audible devices which are telling me what altitude I'm at audibly as well as visually uh, from my head. I go for the deployment here and what you see is I didn't get it the first time. So the suit had restricted me, my thermal suit restricted me from deploying fully. So I had to go back into full flight and then go back out to actually grab it and deploy it. I then had a lovely clean deployment and I landed in this farmer's field and uh, nicely avoided his tractor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the point is we prepared for it, we drilled for it, and I knew that it was a high probability and I actually asked the pilot back in the UK to take me up to 170 miles per hour. I put myself in deliberate spin so I could recover from it because I didn't want it to be the first time I tried to recover it if it occurred and we knew there was a high probability of occurrence. Uh, I landed, uh, a truck pulled up, a gentleman who I would say is um, probably the north side of about 75, 80, leaned out the window and said, where are you from, boy? <laughs> I said about 35,000 feet. And he said, jolly good. And drove up. How about lift? <laughs> so, sorry, I'll just clip on because we're going to here. So, um, we set a new UK and European FIA record for altitude of skydive, which I was surprised about. <coughs> no one apparently in the UK or Europe has actually been higher than that. Obviously, Felix Baumgartner, the world record, has gone up. Uh, what most people don't know is that actually his record was eclipsed 18 months later by a guy called Alan Eustace, who went about 15,000 feet higher, but avoided all media. He was a, a Google VP and multimillionaire, did it on his own down in New Mexico, went with all the support team, um, and basically just did it, just for the hell of it. Um, so we got those records. Uh, we got the record also for the longest freefall distance um, for both the UK and Europe, which is great. Uh, we also set the world record um, for the fastest speed uh, flown. Um, which was actually 249 miles per hour. After they do their digitisation and um, uh, finagling around with the various factors, they claim it's 46.6, but hey um, And I flew through to 14.8 miles. So that was that. Thank you very much. discussing past record holders and things that have happened, but you've got to be the first that have been here and done this sort of thing. It is just unreal. I'm sitting at the back listening. I wanted to know why you did it. I'm still confused. <laughs>
but I admire you because I think that is just unbelievable to do those sort of things. So thank you very much indeed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure there are a few questions that you'd love to ask, so far away. Uh, Gareth, yes. You touched on. Is that on? Yes. You're all go. <laughs> um, you touched on sort of the training you had to do, etc. I mean, one of the things that struck me as, as I was watching the presentation was you must have to be physically pretty strong fit to do this. Um, and it's sort of, I, the, the sort of thing I would compare it with is probably a downhill skier, an Olympic downhill skier, because you're sort of being buffeted all the time by outside factors. But you're doing that for 10 minutes, not one and a half. Yeah, the, the, the funny thing with the fitness aspect of it is um, you're not really buffed him, but actually once you get into flight, it's very clean. Um, so if you're in an unstable, as I was on exit with the spin, yes, that's, that's quite a hard work. The fatigue tends to build up like an endurance race. So three, four minutes, you start to feel it building up. Um, and I trained certain muscle groups so that I could sustain that for a lot longer period. And you know, my, my, my line on the weights bench there with bullies, that, that was absolutely brilliant for it because I trained for 14 minutes knowing that that was a nice ambient gym, whereas if I could push 10 minutes in the freezing cold, etc., you know, I could do that. But um, it's actually very, very smooth flight. I mean, I speeded up the video there just to get through it, but you see there's very little flutter on it. I'm not moving much while I'm doing that. Um, so it's surprisingly sustainable, but there's a lot of mind games as well. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've signed myself up for this, and what really kept me going is what I'm doing is actually it's not that much. It's, no, really, it isn't. The guys who've gone out and lost their lives and lost their limbs and done all of that, they motivate me. So, and, and the guys who've gone before and you know worn bat suits, which quite frankly you know they did put together and they got jet, um, they motivate me. And whilst these suits are cutting edge and, and they're, they're hard to fly, and you know you need to be very current on them, um, there's a lot of mind game there. So I did get very physically fit, and you can't bulk up. You have to be strong, but you can't bulk up. So it's all about endurance. From my point of view, I'll come to you in a minute. So does it feel when you're descending, did you kind of go into a time warp and it lasts <laughs> forever, or is it over very quickly, in either up here or physically? Uh, the start of that jump was over very quickly. Uh, it really was, because mentally I was drilling. So as soon as the, the spin started, I went into survival mode, uh, and that happened very, very quickly. Um, on reflection, I couldn't tell you much about that without the video. I just did stuff. The actual flight itself, while I was flying, actually did seem a long time. Uh, it, it's a really strange thing. Um, you, you're getting sensory overload to a degree and you train yourself to deal with sensory <coughs> overload. But as you're flying along, um, you haven't got time, you have got time, but you haven't really got time to enjoy the view. I, I was conscious that it was very beautiful, but also I'm monitoring a hell of a lot of stuff. So I'm ensuring that my optics is working, I'm ensuring I'm keeping symmetry of the flight, I'm ensuring I'm on the track I want to be on, I'm looking out for aircraft. Um, I'm thinking about what-if scenarios in my head a little bit uh, as I approach the deployment stage, um, and I'm very aware of my altitude. So, yeah, it's, it's again, it's back to the mind game a little bit, in perception. Another question is here, Fraser. Yeah. Um, you, um, you said the guys in the balloon have been very lucky. Can you research that? Yeah, no, they, they, they were lucky, um, and the reason they were lucky is because 
To be honest with you, going above 35,000 feet without a qualified full pressure breathing kit or even a pressure suit is quite frankly dangerous. It really is on the margins. Um, the ambient conditions of the atmosphere change. So they obviously had a day where the density, and it does change depending on what the jet stream is doing, the density was just right for them because normally at that altitude without pressure breathing kit at 40,000 feet, it is highly likely you will lose consciousness even with a 100% flow of oxygen because your lungs just will not work effectively. That's why the ramming in of the regulator is so critical. Now, the interesting thing is when you look at the physiology of those guys, when they did that, they were in their mid to late 20s. The human body is really good, and they, they're both clean living. Um, well, he's Irish, but um, they, they are generally both clean living. I'm kidding. He's a lovely guy. Um, but they keep super fit. So um, their lungs are very good. I mean, I found something out about my own personal physiology. When I was doing all the training and I was in the um, altitude chamber, I was able to sit very happily doing as much maths as I wanted and getting it right at 25,000 feet for longer than anyone. They eventually said, oh, I should stick back on oxygen now. This is, you know, you pass, great. And I said, why is that? Uh, and I'd actually had an MRI scan done as well. I have seven litre lungs, which is a bit weird because I'm only six foot. And the chap said, you've either done a lot of sport or you've done steroids. And I said, well, I haven't done steroids. You know, not, not, a, not a beefcake. Um, but what I used to do is I used to do two four-mile runs a week from the age of nine at my school. I went to a place called Christ Hospital, um, and they were really into fitness, and I was into fitness. I played squash um, for England at U18 level. Um, I used to do all across country. I played tennis. You know, I immersed myself in sport. And what it gave me was a really huge pair of lungs in, in, in you know, those early years' development. And that stood me in really good stead because what it allows me to do is it gives me a, a greater uh, absorption rate because of the physical surface area in my lungs. So I would think that anyone who's young, who's done a lot of sport, is going to be in a better position. So the, the physiology is really interesting. There's, there's still so many unknowns in that space. I mean, I spoke to, with Henry Looper about this, the aeromedical expert, and he said, you know, we're still finding stuff out now. Um, they found out it was better to do the pre-breathe on the climb to altitude than just on the ground. And they're not entirely sure about why that is. They've got you know, theories, but they're not entirely sure. So we're still learning. Okay, one more question, yep. ladies and gentlemen. Over there, hold on just a second. So, um, firstly, tragically, no, I haven't uh, uh, had any jet flights. Um, yeah, I, I may get a backseater, etc., but in really terms of flying, no. My car line is limited that avenue for me, which is very frustrating. So I just enable them to fly by doing the safety case. Um, not bitter. Um, no, I, I love it, and anything I can do to help guys is great. I'm in touch with a lot of guys who um, you know, are test pilots, and, and we work close together. And there's a kind of mutual respect for the lunacy that I do, uh, and some of the things they love to um, so no, I haven't played with jets. Um, in terms of the future, my cameraman um, is, is an equally um, ambitious individual in terms of human flight. So my cameraman has actually managed to strap jets to himself. I kid you not. With the wingsuit. So if anyone wants an entertaining view, um, I can tell you the details. But there's a gentleman called Jarno, he's Dutch, J-A-R-N-O, Cordia, C-O-R-D-I-A. 
And Yano Cordia um, is flying the jets with the wingsuit, and he is getting sustained flight. Now, the issue I have with that from a safety perspective, where do I start? Um, <laughs> fuel? Fuel tanks, really? And high-speed jets? Uh, not a great combo on a human being wearing a nylon suit. Now, <laughs> he, has, he, he assures me it's okay because he has a Nomex suit underneath. I said, Yano, you're still wrapped in nylon. So he's actually made a couple of flights successfully and very safely, and he has a cutaway system on it as well. But, yeah, I'm still dubious of that aspect. However, um, you may well have seen um, the uh, French individual, Yves Rossi, who has flown uh, the Brightling team, and he, he flies effectively uh, a carbon fibre blade. And he actually has two other guys who are now flying with him, all French, funny enough. Um, and those guys are doing some really clever stuff. The reality is, in terms of being commercially viable, is it's not. It's too expensive, um, it's too complex. They launch from a helicopter. Um, helicopter flight rates, as anyone will know, are not cheap. Um, you can't use a fixed wing aircraft unless you use a tailgate aircraft, which is expensive as well, and so on and so forth. It's lovely, and it's like a modern barnstorming, but um, unfortunately, it's, it's not something that's really viable. However, uh, never say never. Richard Browning, who you may have seen, who's now testing the vertical jets, um, technology is evolving at an incredible rate. And with the power that we have in terms of analytics now and learning, and learning faster iteratively in simulation rather than just flying it, um, we're seeing advancements that we couldn't have dreamed of 10 years ago. So um, there are smart materials coming out, which, you know, if you can integrate those into wings and start combining them with uh, advanced hybrid technologies in terms of the engines, who knows? I hope so. Does that answer your question, sir? <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Any more for any more? Ladies and gentlemen, oh, you're going to catch me there, Blenny. This will be the last one. Because people just want to get to the raffle one, don't they? <laughs> there is a tin of WD-40 tonight, so... <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned um, you don't have visual uh, uh, instrumentation while you're flying. Um, it all comes through a headset. So how does that work? Is it cycled through? So, um, on, on the back of my helmet, I have one of those GPS units I talked about earlier, the fly site, we call it. Uh, that is then wired through the inside of my helmet to an uh, earpiece, uh, and the earpiece little speaker on my left side, and it tells me what's going on. I can program it to do a number of things. Uh, at the most basic level, it tells me what altitude I'm at. I actually have a visual altimeter on my, on my wrist, and being a safety nerd, I also actually have one on my chest as well, um, so I have backup redundancy. I also have um, two independent portable altimeters inside the helmet. Um, and when I'm in the aircraft, I'm plugged into a comm suite so I can talk to the pilot. But when I'm out of flight, it'll give me the altitude drops. I can actually program it so that it gives me a waypoint and a destination point. It also gives me a tone. So I get a tone, um, high pitch, low pitch, depending on whether my glide path is increasing or decreasing. Uh, if I'm going for a speed run, I can set that for speed increase or decrease. If I'm going for glide path time, I can set it for maximum glide, minimum glide. <laughs> Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Fraser Corsan. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Right, no, no, don't worry about that. Okay, let's go on the raffle if this works. So, first ticket number 73587. 73587.